Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be reading verses uh, 8 through 10 and then um, 13 to 16. 8 through 10 and 13 to 16. That should be on the screen as well. Hear the reading of God's word. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Down to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to tag our text today, a foreign faith, a foreign faith. Let's pray before we begin. Father, uh, we are so grateful for your word, that your word speaks truth into our time today. Your word is, as it says, living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. You can pierce even into our hearts. And so we invite that, God. We invite you to do surgery on us where we need things cut out of our life. We invite you to sew us up and make us whole and heal us and restore us, God. May your word do its work in us for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I don't know about you, but I have never been scuba diving. I hear it's fantastic. It's a really cool experience. I've been snorkeling. I don't know if that counts, where you're just on top of the water and you go like a few inches, but you go too far. You can't really do that. But I've heard in snorkeling, you know, it's, it's quite elaborate. Or in, sorry, in scuba diving, it's quite elaborate. You've got all this gear. You've got this air tank and you're wearing all this other stuff. And, and it's, it's pretty cool because you can go further longer and you could see all kinds of stuff under the water and the ocean. You can see coral reefs and all that kind of cool stuff. And, and you can interact with fish for a long period of time. And, and I was actually reading about it this week. And, and this Navy diver, this, this Navy diver who has a ton of experience diving, he was talking about how it's different when you go further down below the surface. That on the top of the surface, you can see things and it's beautiful, but below, deep, deep below the surface, it gets real dark. And he said it actually gets terrifying. And the guy who was interviewing him, he was asking him about that and what that's like. And he said, actually, it's so scary because you don't know where you are. You, you can't tell up from down, right from left. You, you can't get a sense of direction or, or anything. You just kind of lose a sense of, of what's around you. And so the guy interviewing him, he said, well, what do you do then? How do you gain your sense of direction again? 
And he said, one thing, you have to feel the bubbles. And as I read that, I was like, what, what is he talking about? Feel the bubbles. And you may have seen picture or videos where you see all the bubbles coming out of the scuba diver, right? It, it's the air coming out of the tank, but it's, uh, it's, it's him saying this. He's saying, you've got to feel the bubbles because that's where you find your direction. I, w- I want to read to you what he says. He says, he says when, when it's pitch black and you have no idea which way to go, you reach up with your hand and you feel for the bubbles. The bubbles always drift to the surface. And when you can't trust your feelings or your judgment or your sight, you can always trust the bubbles to get you back to the surface. You can always trust the bubbles. Now, I found that interesting because I don't know about you, but I've, I've experienced darkness on a level that it can just be disorienting. You experience darkness and, and you kind of lose direction. You, you don't know what's going on. You don't know where you're headed. And, and it might be darkness in a physical sense. It might be darkness in a spiritual sense. But either way, darkness has this disorienting effect where you don't know your direction anymore. You don't know how you got to where you are. You don't know where you're going. You're just lost. I mean, if you've ever been through infidelity in your marriage, you know that feeling. If you've ever been through a crisis in your finances and you don't know what's going to happen the next month, you know that feeling. If you've ever been so trapped in addiction, you're ashamed to let anybody even into your life to see the depths of the darkness, you know that feeling. You, You know what it's like to be in this disorienting moment where I don't know where I'm headed, I don't know even who I am. What What is going on in my life? And there's, there's a reality that you need to feel the bubbles, right? There's a reality where, like the Navy diver, you, you need something outside of yourself that, that can give you direction where you are. Because where you are, you, you don't have any clue how to get out. So there has to be something beyond you. There has to be something out there that, that can tell you where up is and where down is. And that's faith. Right? Faith is this reorienting to truth. And so as we continue this series today uh, on Hebrews 11, we're calling it Enduring Faith, Enduring Faith. And we're looking at people who are stuck in that kind of darkness. The early church in this time of Hebrews, when it was written and, and the Christians it was written to, they were going through extreme persecution, extreme suffering. The Roman government at the time was, was uh, full of, uh, of, of evil intentions towards this new burgeoning church. They were concerned about Jesus being called Lord because that was a political statement that now if, if Caesar's Lord and Jesus can't be Lord, what, what does this mean? So they're trying to crush the church, taking people's property, taking people's jobs. I mean, people are panicking. These Jewish Christians who life was easier before they came to Jesus, now they're wondering, should I go back? The darkness is too much. I, I don't even know where I'm going. Why am I going this way? Who am I? What, what, what is happening? And so the context of Hebrews 11 is extreme suffering that's causing people to think about faith differently. Faith in the darkness. Faith when everything around you is falling apart. And so I want to ask that question today. How can we know who we are and where we're going in the middle of the darkness? It begins with the call of God. So if you're taking notes today, the call of God. Number one, the call of God. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. 
Uh, it says, by faith, they always introduce the new, the new character in this chapter by that phrase, by faith, Abraham. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, it's fascinating to me that Abraham is actually the most, uh, most looked at character in the hall of faith, as we call it in Hebrews 11. Abraham gets a good chunk, and we're going to look at Abraham for the next three weeks, actually, Abraham and Sarah. And, and there's this, this sense that, that that is legitimate because Abraham is called in the New Testament the father of faith, right? He's the father of faith, as Paul calls him. And so there's this sense that he is kind of the greatest of all the, the greats of faith. And so Genesis 2, or sorry, Genesis 12 tells us why that is. It goes all the way back to his calling. See, Abram, as he was known then, before God changed his name to Abraham, Abram grew up in a pagan culture. I mean, Abram was, he was in a culture that was surrounded with idolatry and evil and greed, and, and it was known as this unjust society. It was Ur of the Chaldeans. That was Abram's home. In fact, his family was so entrenched in it, his dad was named after the moon god. I mean, that was Abram. He didn't care about God. He didn't know God. He wasn't aware of God. He was living in Ur of the Chaldeans, doing his own thing, living his life. But God was looking for him. And God shows up in Abram's life, and he completely shocks him. He shows up into his life, and he gives this calling. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, he says to Abram, he says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, could you imagine for a moment, like I said, he doesn't know God. He'd never heard of God, most likely. And then God shows up and he tells him, I want, to pack, I want you to pack all your stuff and move. And I'm not going to tell you where you're going. I mean, that is just insane. He's leaving all his comfort. He's leaving his family. He's leaving the world he knew. He's leaving his culture. He's leaving so much with nothing but a promise. That's it. God says, I want you to relocate. I want you to go to a place that is going to be away from here. So in order for you to come to me, right? He's calling him to himself. In order for you to come to me, you're going to have to leave behind your old life and relocate to a new place. You catch it? Right? He, he's, he's saying, uh, you, you're going to have to leave behind all the other things to start a new life. You're going to have to come out in order to come toward. Or to put it one way, God is saying, if, if you're going to come towards me, you're going to have to come out of all of that. He calls us in by calling us out. It's kind of like the classic scene in The Matrix. I mean, I know that movie's getting old enough now that probably most of the younger folks haven't even seen The Matrix, but the classic scene in The Matrix where Lawrence Fishburne comes to Keanu Reeves and Keanu Reeves doesn't know what's going on, he's, he's panicking, and, and he sits him down and he tells him there's this thing called The Matrix and it's controlling your life and all that you see is not real, it's lies, and he thinks he's crazy, and then he gives him that famous speech, right? He, he holds out in his hand two pills, a red pill and a blue pill. And you remember what he said to him? He, he, he gives him this speech and he says, he says, this is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed, believe whatever you want to believe, but you take the red pill 
And you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In other words, what Lawrence Fishburne was saying is, if you take the red pill, you, you choose to leave behind all of this, this world of lies, this reality that isn't true, and you're going to come into a world of truth, but you can't go back. You're going to have to go from one place to the other. This is what God is doing when he's calling Abram out. He's saying, I'm calling you out of your homeland into a new land. And it's the same thing that God does whenever he calls any of us, right? You go back to the New Testament and you see Jesus calling the disciples. What does he do? He says, I need you to come, follow me, take up your cross, and leave behind everything else. What do they do? They leave it all. They put their nets down and immediately they relocate. They, they go into a new place. They're, they're now following Jesus, right? Even in the New Testament, the word church in Greek is ekklesia. It means called out ones. These are the people who've been called out of their life into a new life, right? When Jesus calls his disciples, he, he calls them into a new life that leaves behind their former allegiances, leaves behind their former comforts, leaves behind their former way of doing things. So when he calls Matthew... Matthew has to leave behind his allegiance to the Roman government as a tax collector. When he calls Peter, he has to leave behind his allegiances to business and commerce as a fisherman. And now Jesus is his Lord. When he calls Simon the zealot, Simon has to leave behind the zealot political party and all its intentions to come follow Jesus. You see that? There's this clear break where God calls you out of something into something new. And the miracle of the gospel is that he makes the first move. He always makes the first move. Listen to me. God never calls somebody who's looking to be called. Not a single person in this room was ever called by God because you were looking for him. You were called by God when you wanted nothing to do with him. God calls people who want nothing to do with Him so that grace is always a surprise. Grace is always, listen, grace is always a disruption to the norm of whatever you were doing before God showed up. It's always this, this initiative of a gracious, seeking God. See, He came to Abraham, He came to you, He came to everyone else He's called because He desired them. He desired them, not, not because you somehow desired Him and so He returns the favor. No, He shows up when you wanted nothing. He comes in the same way today. Stuck in your sin, He's moving towards you. Stuck in, in your, your overwhelmed pain and confusion and anxiety, He's moving towards you, right? Some of you need to hear that today because you're stuck in that darkness now. Some of you need to hear that because you're waiting for yourself to kind of boost up enough goodness in you to get back in good relationship with God, but that's not how it works. The only way that you get out of where you are is if God calls you out and pulls you out. So He, he pulls you out into what? Into a relationship with Himself, right? He calls you not just to a place, but to a person. And this is what is, is amazing about Abram's faith. Abram realizes this. He catches this. That, that's why he's not as concerned about the place. He's, he knows that the person is enough. 
He's not as concerned about even the path of how are we going to get there? Where are we going? What's it going to be like, God? None of that. It's okay. Because I have met the real God and the real God is enough. This person who's calling me to himself out of whatever my former life is, he's enough. You, You can leave anything if God becomes everything. You can't. You can leave anything. Whatever your former allegiance was, whatever your former way of life was, you can leave it. But then, listen, then God calls him into something, right? He calls him into a place. In, in, in fact, he, he calls him out by grace into, into be a new citizen. And this is the second point that we see here in the text. The citizens of God, the citizens of God. Look, look at verse 9. It says again, he says, By faith he, that's Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now, this is fascinating because Abraham leaves uh, his home, right? He leaves Ur the Chaldeans only on a promise. God tells him, come, I'll show you the place. He goes to the place and there's people there. He goes to the place and it's occupied. It's occupied. He, you know, he shows up and there's, there's people everywhere that are against him, these Canaanites. And when he shows up, what does he do? He sets up a tent and he lives in tents in the promised land with his family. In other words, as Hebrew says, he lives as if it's a foreign land, even though this is the land of promise that God had said to him. Now, it says later in verse 13, it says, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This becomes a theme throughout the whole Bible where there's the strangers and exiles, where you see that in the life of Israel. You see it in Abraham's life first, but you see it all throughout the story of his family, even into the New Testament. You pick up this paradigm in the church where Abram is sleeping in tents in the promised land becomes the way the church thinks about itself. Right? You see that language picked up as, G- as uh, Peter addresses the church in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, to those who are elect exiles. In other words, he's speaking to the church that's spread out. He's saying, you are God's elect, you are God's people, but you are exiled among the world. You're living in tents like your father Abraham. And then you see it again as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul, he's not denying his own Roman citizenship or the Roman citizenship of his uh, church in Philippi. He's not denying that, but he is saying, he is declaring that you have a greater citizenship. You have a greater citizenship in heaven. And so what he's saying is the same thing Peter was saying, same thing the Hebrews are saying, same thing that was true of Abraham in the Old Testament. He's saying you are believers before you're Romans. You are Christians before you are Romans. Listen, so much of the confusion and the hurt and the pain and the foolishness right now in our culture is because we try to make this place home. We, we try to make this place home rather than live in tents. And listen, faith in Jesus doesn't and it won't fit in this world. It shouldn't. It shouldn't. 
I mean, on January 6th, the, the world watched in shock as rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol. It was violent, it was atrocious, it was evil. Five people died, 140 people injured. I mean, wherever you fall on the political spectrum, I hope we can at least agree it was wrong. But here's what's most disturbing to me about that whole scene. What was most disturbing was all the the Christian paraphernalia that was all over. I mean, there's people carrying crosses. There's people with signs that said, Jesus saves. And then they get into the, the chamber, and there's video of them leading a prayer meeting. And listen, I just want to read the transcript from that video. It says this, Thank you, divine, omniscient, and omnipresent Creator God for filling this chamber with your white light and love, your white light of harmony. Thank you for filling this chamber with patriots who love you and love Christ. Thank you for allowing the United States of America to be reborn. We love you and thank you. I don't know who they're praying to, but it's not the God of the Bible. And listen, it's, uh, it's disturbing to, to see Christianity and, and, and American nationalism become synonymous. And, and we as the church, we, we have a part in that. We have a part in that where we have to start asking, how can something like this happen? How can it happen on our watch? I'll tell you how it happens. Because we've confused this place as our home. It happens when you trade your citizenship in heaven for your citizenship in America. That's how it happens. The the dangerous heresy of Christian nationalism, it has to be confronted in the church. It has to be confronted because it's on our watch that this heresy would confuse citizenship in heaven with citizenship in America, and it will destroy the church. Because we can't have a witness like that. Right, Martin Luther King in his letter from Birmingham jail said it this way, he said, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather it is the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. You catch those categories? He's saying you can't be, we as the church, you can't be the master of the state because then you get caught up in these power politics and and you're just hungry for more influence and you'll, you'll make compromises. Because you want to run the show and you want to be in charge. But you also can't be the servant of the state because we answer to a higher king. We answer to somebody who, if he disagrees with what's happening, whatever may be happening, we can't just bow down to the state. But when you're you're the conscience of the state, you can live out your calling as the people of God to be citizens of a different kingdom and be citizens in this place. 
You catch that? But that's the only way that it happens. It's, it's the only way that, that we as the people of God are, are able to live out this calling to be citizens of, of a different city, of a different kingdom, to represent a different world. right? And what that means is we're, we're going to be strangers in this world that don't fit. We don't fit. I mean, the, the kingdom of God is not progressive. It's not conservative. It's not even moderate, like some kind of mushy middle. It's completely other. It's a radically different kingdom that is coming on top of the kingdom of this world in a way that's, that's different than anything you expect. The kingdom of God is, is something that, that we represent that, that confounds everything in this world. And, and so we can't fit. We shouldn't fit. The moment we stop living as strangers and exiles and we start to fit in, that's the danger. That should be the problem where we say we're too much like this world that we've compromised. I mean, listen carefully. The, the scriptures aren't describing some kind of Christian escapism. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's calling us to engage as citizens of heaven. To engage as ambassadors of another kingdom. Ambassadors of a kingdom where the poor inherit the kingdom. Ambassadors of a kingdom where the hungry will be satisfied. Ambassadors of a kingdom where those who weep will one day laugh. Ambassadors of a kingdom where those who are hated and reviled will one day rejoice. For as the Bible says, their reward is great in heaven. God's people are citizens of a different kingdom. A different kingdom. God's kingdom. And so God calls us out of this world to himself to be citizens of a kingdom that represents him. And so as people who represent him, what do we look forward to? Well, that's what he says here. He says we look forward to a city that's to come, not here. Right? This is the last point, the city of God. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, he says, For he was looking forward, that's speaking of Abraham, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You catch that? Faith, listen, faith has two sides, always has two sides. You could use the language of, of marriage if you want, like you, you leave and you cleave. It, it's the same thing in faith. You, you've got two sides. It's, it's always repent and believe. That those are the two sides of faith. It's repent and believe. Repentance is the leaving part. You're, you're turning away from something in your old life. You're, you're leaving a location that you once were to go to a new location. You're turning towards something, but that something is what? It's faith. And here he describes it as you're believing, you're, you're looking forward to a city, a city that's to come. That, that's what you're putting your faith in. You were looking to the city of God. In verse 16 he says, but as it were, they, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I'm telling you, there are so many people in our culture in this room who desire a better country, but it's the wrong country. He's saying, we, we desire a better country, but it's a country that's coming from heaven to earth. It's a city that's coming down right here. That's the country. He's saying, what, what country are you desiring? See, there's coming a, a city that God has prepared for us, one with foundations, one whose designer and builder is God. And it's the city that Jesus left his own home for 
to have for us. It's the city that Jesus left behind His home as He answered the call of God to come be our Redeemer here. Jesus leaves His home in heaven with all of its comfort, with all of its glory and all of its splendor. He leaves His home to come here to a land that didn't want Him, to a land that rejected Him, to a land that hated Him, to a land that killed Him. He came for us. Because he was called into something greater. And as he looked out on the city of Jerusalem, making his way to Calvary, where he would be crucified on the cross, Jesus looked at the city, and what did he do? He wept. He wept because he saw the city that God had designed to reflect his kingdom, not the way God designed it. He saw the city full of greed and selfishness. He saw the city disconnected from its, its poorest. He saw a city that wanted nothing to do with God and true worship. He saw a city that was full of evil. And he wept as he made his way to the cross to set the foundations for a new city. To set the foundations for a new city that would be founded in his blood. Founded in his suffering. Founded in his death founded in his resurrection, a new city that would be different than any other city we've experienced here, a new city founded on the good news of who Jesus is. And so he told his disciples before he died, he said, I go to prepare a place for you, a place that will be different than any other place you've seen here because it will be my father's kingdom here on earth. John in Revelation 21 caught a vision of that place and said this, and I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. And so by its light will the nations walk, and the kingdoms of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates shall never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. He's saying that is the kingdom that's to come. And faith is looking forward. It's, it's having eyes fixed forward on the city that's to come. That's faith. There's a research scientist by the name of Dr. Jan Suman. He's a German research scientist. And a few years ago, he wrote a uh, research paper that, that someone sent me recently about uh, what people, humans walking in circles. He's doing this research to try to figure out why people struggle to walk in a straight line. And you can kind of do his research on your own if you want to check it out this afternoon. Take, take somebody out to an open field, put a blindfold on them, and just tell them to walk in a straight line. And you'll watch. You'll, you'll see them start to curve all the way around and make a circle. I mean, there's something about when, when you're blindfolded, you, you start to walk in circles. And so he started to do some research on why is this and took people to different places, took them to the beach, had them walk in circles, took them to the Sahara Desert, still walking in circles, took them to all kinds of different locations. No matter the location, no matter the climate, they walked in circles. And then he decided, well, maybe it's the blindfold. Maybe, maybe if I can give them at least a sense of their surroundings, then, then maybe that'll help. And so he, he brought them to a, a dense forest, still walking in circles. He brought people to kind of a foggy area out in the open, and even, even in the low visibility, they still couldn't walk a straight line. 
And this was what his research conclusion is. I thought this was fascinating. He said, we don't know why. We, we have no answers yet, but it seems that humans walk in circles without some kind of external focal point. You catch that? He said, if you can't see where you're going, if you don't have some kind of external focal point, you won't be able to walk a straight line. You'll end up curving and twisting and turning and you'll get lost in the middle of it. And he's saying exactly what Hebrews 11 is saying, where Abraham had to have his eyes fixed on something forward. He had to look forward and he had to see the city of God that was better, better than the promised land here on earth because he wasn't looking for that land. He was looking for a land that was to come. He was looking forward to walk in a straight line of faith, not by sight, because God had promised it. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that what they do want and want extremely much is something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. Amen. The good news, listen, the good news as we close is simply this. Jesus has prepared a place for you so that your eyes can be fixed there and not here. Jesus has prepared a place for all of us where it's, it's built on the foundation of His work. It's not built on your efforts. It's not built on your associations or, or your political parties. It's not built on, on whatever else you might think the, the kingdom of God is built on. It's built on Him. And the good news of the gospel is not that you make it to the city. It's that the city comes down to you. You notice that? That whatever the darkness may be, the, the God of that city is coming towards you. He's moving towards you. He's moving towards you in your doubts. He's moving towards you in your fears. He's moving towards you in your worries. He's moving towards you in your failures. He's moving towards you. Are your eyes fixed on Him? Are they fixed on the city that's to come? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we uh, are amazed that you uh, would set up a city for us, the, the people who rebelled against you, the people who have allowed every city on earth to be full of corruption and evil. And yet you said, I will die for them. I will give my blood, my life for them. I will build a city for them, for all my enemies. I will build a city that I will allow in all the former evil and, and rebellious sinners just like us, Lord. Just like us. And so like Abraham, we ask that you would, um, you would call us out and remind us that we've been called out. 
We've been called out to be witnesses, to be ambassadors of where we're headed. And so God made this church and the churches in our community and in our nation and across the world, may we be places that point towards that greater place. May we be people who speak of, of a better country, a country founded on your values, your kingdom. And Lord, may we love our neighbors as we live in tents here on earth. We pray in Jesus' name.